Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to have not only a very inspiring guest, but also the battle of accents. You know, obviously the Spanglish, the British, you know, you name it. But the, but the building, scaling, financing, the exiting, the rebuying, you know, also the IP and the team, you know, of uh, what you had, you know, gotten acquired for, you know, previously. We're going to cover all of this stuff. And I think that you are all going to find this episode super inspiring. So without further ado, Let's welcome our guest today, Jamison Christmas. Welcome to the show. Yes, good afternoon. Delighted to be with you. So born there in the UK. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Well, look, the UK is a very interesting place to be. You know, I, I grew up uh, just a regular kid, um, decided that technology was the place for me. And so I left school at the age of 16, would you believe, and undertook an apprenticeship here in the UK, which is a it's quite an unusual thing actually you you get to spend time at, at college and university and you spend some days of the week at work and so you get a very grounded view of technology the challenges of technology and implementation so did that for a few years made some really significant progress in my career then undertook a, an undergraduate degree in electronic engineering and came out with a first class honors degree and then found myself at Cambridge University uh, with the opportunity to pursue a PhD. And so being a child of the 70s, you know, grown up, you know, surrounded by science fiction, Star Wars, and, you know, the vision that the likes of George Lucas really created for us. I, I went into the university and I asked the really most ludicrously simple question, which was, why hasn't holography and 3D really happened yet? And the answer was, because it's ridiculously hard. And so, you know, undertook the PhD and set off on a, on a mission to try and realize holographic displays as science fiction tells us they should be. And we'll talk about, you know, what you've done too on your entrepreneurial career. But one thing, you know, really stands out here. One is leaving school at 16. I mean, that's quite a bold uh, move. So uh, why? I guess, I, you know, at the age of 16, I just felt that, you know, the traditional academic route was not the route for me. You know, my, my dad is uh, an engineer and, you know, my other family members have been in engineering their, their whole lives. And having experienced it firsthand, having seen it, I just knew that I wanted to get hands on with the technology and, you know, studying for you know four, five, six more years before you really get into the tech, that wasn't attractive for me. I wanted to get in there. And so that's exactly what I did. So getting back into, into studies, I mean, you're leaving studies and then you get back into them, you know, with Cambridge. So, I mean, why was this the case? Because maybe you were bored, you know, with the academic, uh, you know, experience that you were getting at 16. And then all of a sudden you found that you could tailor made, you know, a little bit more the experience to your passion and to your likings or, or what was that? It, it was more about an opportunity to spend time with some of the brightest minds, you know, on the planet, really. 
Uh, and, you know, you go into some of these, these really incredible academic institutions and you realize that they're, they're working on, on technologies and problems that won't see the light of day for, you know, sometimes 10, 15, 20 years. And, and that was really, you know, it was such an amazing opportunity. And it was really also fulfilling a lifelong dream to, you know, to undertake a PhD in, a, in an amazing institution like that. So at what point do you realize that the holographic technologies were the path you wanted to follow? Well, like I said, really, it, it all started with this idea of, you know, why hadn't science fiction happened yet? And, you know, I, I happened to spend some time with just the most amazing professor, um, Professor William Crosland. And he was doing some some work where they were utilizing holographic techniques to you know, enhance telecommunications. And, you know, he and I got talking about, well, you know, surely you can use this same technology for displays. And, uh, and lo and behold, absolutely was the answer. And, and you know, frankly, given that opportunity, it was, it was too good an opportunity to, uh, to turn down. So then in this case, you know, after you got that exposure, you got, you know, so passionate about holographic technologies, you decide to take a stab at it, you know, on the entrepreneurial journey and you go for it. So walk us through what happened there. Well, I mean, it really all started with with the PhD work uh, in Cambridge. So, you know, frankly, made a number of important breakthroughs in terms of the device and material science that you need to make holography viable for the first time, and also made some breakthroughs in terms of the mathematics that can deliver really high quality imagery within the constraints of available compute solutions. And so, you know, actually at the end of my PhD, I built a full color holographic Pico projector as a, as a demonstrator of what might be possible. So having realized that this thing really was tangible, then decide, you know what, I want to continue this journey. And so in the third of January, 2010, my, my co-founder, uh, a gentleman by the name of Peter Woodland and, and I decided that we would start a company to continue this journey. Now, of course, 2010, January 2010, you know, in the wake of the Lehman's stock, not a great time to start a company, um, an even worse time to start a true deep technology company that's developing custom hardware for a revolutionary technology because nobody is interested in investing in hardware at that point. And so we elect to bootstrap the company ourselves directly and we go for it. So obviously now you've, you've raised money now for your next company and, and we'll talk about it. Uh, but, you know, in this case, you know, what were some of the challenges that you were experiencing, you know, when bootstrapping the company? Because most guests that come on the show, they talk about raising a bunch of money and having that support, having that oxygen. But what happens when you don't have that? It's really tough is the simple answer. So, you know, effectively for about the first six months, you know, Peter and I, we didn't pay ourselves. We only paid our staff. And, you know, you invest in the tech to try and demonstrate the viability. And in this case, you know, we, we decided that we would focus upon trying to take the tech into the automotive market because we knew for well that the car companies are happy to invest in technology that won't come to fruition for four or five years. And more importantly, they're willing to support the development of that technology. And so we configured the company to be cash flow positive. 
you know, that's to say, you know, we would demonstrate technology and then we would earn a revenue as we progress it towards maturity. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, having sort of done the base research work in Cambridge, then decided that I would convert it across to a, a head-up display-like technology for the automotive world. Did so, promoted it to different car companies, and ultimately one business with Jaguar Land Rover. And that really became our runway for the future. So then in this case, you know, like what, what ended up being the business model of the company for the people that are listening to really get it? So in the early days, it was about paid development work, paid research work. So sometimes we did research for the government. Sometimes we did research work for other companies. But essentially, it was you know, about ensuring that at the end of each year, we walked away with a, a, a small profit. And you know, every pound that we made, we invested in IP. So, so what does that you know, investment in IP, what did that look like? So in the early days, we were very selective in terms of the number of patents that we filed, and more particularly in the areas in which we filed patents, those which we believed that would be the most important. And you know, just to explain how that's played out, well, you know, here we are you know, approaching you know, 10 plus years down the line, and today we're sitting on over 800 patents in the core technology. So, so I guess for the people that are listening to really, you know, get it, you know, clearly, what ended up being the business model of Two Trees Photonics? How were you guys making money? So ultimately, you know, given that we were a very small company, we started off with just four people and ultimately grew out to about 11 people. Um, the automotive world would never accept us as being part of the supply chain. So what we did was we partnered with some tier ones and they became our manufacturing partner and we received a royalty on on you know every product that was made you know in respect of the core technologies that we had developed so so tell us about going through the you know obviously bootstrapping you know it's a it's pretty nerve-wracking as as we were alluding to and how you guys were investing in technology too at what point do you guys realize hey i think that we're into something here actually very early on you know when when we first demonstrated our holographic head-up display to Jaguar Land Rover, they were absolutely blown away that this brand new technology could compete with, you know, incumbent technologies, you know, straight off the bat. And the very fact that you had such a large, prestigious company recognizing the potential of the technology told us that we had something special. It was still full of risk at that point, but the view was, do we believe we can make this happen? Do we believe we can demonstrate the maturity? Yes, absolutely. And and that's exactly what we set out to do. It was very much, you know, we got a real gem of an opportunity and it was an absolute focus on execution to realize that opportunity. And there were like some moments that were breathtaking, like for example, going through earthquakes. So how did the great earthquake, let's say in 2011 or 2014, jeopardize, you know, what you guys were up to? I mean, that was absolutely nerve-wracking. And, well, what I can tell you is our Tier 1 partner were, was based in northern Japan, in Furukawa. And so I was there in Japan regularly working with them on, you know, how you mature the technology, how we solve some of the challenges that we were experiencing at the time. And, indeed, I actually flew out of Japan the day before 
the the great earthquake. So narrowly, I missed it personally, but of course, the Sendai region uh, was devastated, and for a long time, of course, it was, you know, northern Japan was simply inaccessible. And for a while, we really thought this might end the program entirely because you know everything had to stop, and you know the amazing people in Japan, you know, turned turned around what was an absolute disaster in you know an incredibly short period of time when you saw the sheer devastation it was quite remarkable to see the resilience and the adaptiveness with which they overcame but overcame they did uh, and we re-engaged and we continued then to you know go continue the journey and and you know very fortunate that they were able to do so so quickly so so shifting gears here, you know, obviously after close to seven years, the company got acquired. So what was it like, you know, going through that acquisition process? Well, it wasn't seven years. It was it was five years. So effectively what happened was we started the company in 2010. In 2014, our first product went into mass production and was shipped in the first vehicles in, in 2015. And, you know, Jaguar Land Rover got to announce to the world they had the world's first laser-based head-up display and the world's first holographic display of any kind. Um, and that created a huge amount of interest in the company. And ultimately, we, we ended up agreeing terms with a West Coast startup um, called Daiquiri. And Daiquiri were groundbreaking. They, they were developing augmented reality wearable technology in the form of you know, um, a hard hat or smart glasses. Uh, and the idea was you know, to take this into the industrial domain. They had incredible software and sensing technologies, um, and we had amazing display technologies. And, and so to be acquired was, was the most amazing experience. Perhaps more importantly, you know, we moved out of a, of a scenario whereby we were cash-constrained and, and growing organically into one where it was venture-backed. And suddenly, the quantum of investment changes dramatically overnight. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email 
at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And you were there for a couple of years after the acquisition, but then you realize that there is an opportunity to buy back the team, buy back the IP. I mean, that's a pretty amazing opportunity. Well, so what happened was that, you know, while we were working away on wearable technologies, the automotive companies that we'd previously been working with came back to us and said, you know, we genuinely believe the future of displays in cars is going to be holographic and we'd like you to work with us. And so we started doing some some work in this area, you know, under the Daiquiri umbrella, but it became very clear that, you know, Deploying augmented reality into a vehicle and deploying augmented reality on the person, very different problems. And so the opportunity arose. Uh, and so I uh, approached the, the investors and said, you know, I'd like to buy out all my IP and the, and the previous company and the team and go back into the automotive world. And, and that's exactly what happened. And so on the 1st of January 2018, uh, Invisix was reborn. And we set off on a mission to to bring augmented reality to the car. Now, how does augmented reality in the car look like? What does that look like? So head-up displays you know, already exist in the car. It makes your speedo appear to float you know, a couple of meters out in front of you. Augmented reality takes that and enhances the experience quite dramatically. I think the important thing to understand is, well, what's the rationale for all of this in the first place? The rationale is, you know, currently, you know, very big displays in cars, but each time you need to look into the vehicle to actually obtain information, you're looking away from the road. Your situational awareness decreases dramatically. And where you have touch screens, then, you know, the time you spend looking into the car increases dramatically. What, what, what augmented reality and head-up displays design, is designed to do is to keep your eyes looking out at the road, but to supplement your view of that, of the road and the world around you with information which is pertinent for driving. And so head-up displays, that shows you your instrument cluster, that shows you your speed and warning symbols. And then what augmented reality does is it goes that much further and it overlays information upon reality. It could be navigation information and the way that we implement that is we paint the road with light so you have this very intuitive experience of you know which lane you should be in which direction you should turn you know you don't have to look away from the road into the car say is it next left next right the car illustrates that to you directly the other thing it does is it enables us to draw your eyes to hazards in the urban environment. So pedestrians walking along the street or vehicles that look like they're crossing into your lane. We can actually overlay those objects with lights that draw your attention very precisely to where you need them to be. And you know what we're seeing is as a result of that, it really does enhance your awareness of your of your environment and therefore makes you that much safer in the vehicle. Now for this for this time around, you guys have raised money. So why did you decide to raise money and how much have you guys raised today? In 2020, we raised $50 million um, at a $250 million valuation. Um, that was our Series B funding round. And we have just announced our Series C where we've raised another $50 million. This time, we're approaching a $500 million valuation. So all in all, to do the math, how much? 
So over 100 million. Over 100 million. Now, why did you decide to raise money this time around? It's, it's really about the, the progressive scaling of the technology and the business for execution reasons. So it's in the public domain. I can tell you that uh, the Cadillac Lyric will be the first vehicle carrying our Generation 2 technology. That's our augmented reality head-up display. Uh, and that will be deploying later on this year. We have many, many other uh, OEMs, car companies that are interested in our technology. And so we have got to scale the company in response to the interest that we're seeing. The other thing is, you know, we're not putting down our pencils. We have a very clear roadmap of technology development. Uh, and so we continue to invest very heavily in the, the mathematics, the, the processing, and, you know, of course, the, the overarching product roadmap that goes with that. And as you guys are now, um, you know, really building this and executing, why the automotive industry is so hard to compete? So it's a really tough environment. You know, people think about their, their off-the-shelf consumer products like a telephone, but these things are pretty straightforward. You know, we're, we are a new technology. Pretty much every other technology in the car that you see today is based upon incumbent, well-established technologies. Ours is, is very new, and yet we have to survive the full rigors of automotive, automotive testing, which means that we have to demonstrate the technology will work seamlessly from minus 40 degrees C all the way through to 85 degrees C, and you have to have the ability to store the device out to 125 degrees C. You know, this is way beyond the bounds of you know, expectations you might find for a consumer technology. And, you know, that's really aggressive. So, so as you're building to the company, you know, in terms of people, how many, how many employees do you guys have now? And how have you guys thought about the distribution? Because I believe you guys have employees everywhere. And, and what does that look like, you know, when it comes to the, to the culture? Well, look, I mean, we've got an amazing team of people here. Um, we are just crossing through 100 employees right now. Um, I would say the majority of them are based here at our headquarters in the United Kingdom, but we have a satellite office in Detroit, a satellite office we've just opened in Frankfurt, and indeed we've just placed our first person into Asia, in Tokyo. And, you know, we are you know, very much driven by, you know, intellectual capital. So over a quarter of the company have PhDs, you know, just an incredible workforce and you know the, the team here love working on the cutting edge of science, and that's something we very much reward. So, if you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company, you know, is fully realized, obviously it would be a beautiful world. But what would that world look like when the vision of Invisix is out there? So, of course, I mean, let's, let's start with the obvious, which is you, we'd find our technology deployed on, on many, many millions of vehicles. But really, you know, what we're, what we're talking about here is what does the future of mobility look like? And we genuinely believe that our holographic technology is going to transform the way you experience your journeys. You know, quite when an autonomous journey will come to fruition, it's not clear to me. But what we do know is that when we think about the future of the market, I see a bifurcation. 
yes, there will be these autonomous pods that you know you can call up on demand that will take you from A to B, and your experience in that pod will be you know really quite different from anything you can think of now. You know, you can watch movies on the windows around you. You can have video conferences. You can have your journey augmented with you know landmarks being pointed out to you. You know, history sites, advertisements for you know discounts or shops or you you name it. It's it's very much going to transform the way you perceive your journey. But equally, I don't believe that you know the future is entirely autonomous. People enjoy driving for the sake of driving. And I think that market will continue, in which case the idea that you know you have an augmented reality head-up display enhancing your driving experience, you know you might drive from your home to a you know a, a racetrack, in which case your head-up display is showing you the racing line to really you know knock those tenths of a second off of off of your personal best. You know that's the future, but that only speaks to the application of this technology to head-up displays. And it really is not limited to just that application. So, what 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 other applications you know uh, are we probably going to be encountering as we are seeing the future of automotive unfold? Because it sounds like now things are moving so quickly, so rapidly. Well, look, the holographic technology technology we're developing truly is holographic in the sense that science fiction tells us it should be volumetric and truly three dimensional. And of course, if you've got that. You know, how you deploy that within a mobility experience can be really transformative. You know, the it could be that you're playing 3D movies inside the vehicle and each person sat around the car is experiencing a different perspective. That's just one potential for the technology. And, you know, many others can be realized way beyond that. And what about safety? You know, how are you seeing safety and, and perhaps this technology is contributing to safety? So, as well? you know, very much it's, it's kind of as I mentioned earlier, really, which is, you know, when you're responsible for a vehicle, your situational awareness is absolutely paramount. If you're looking away from the road, if you're trying to touch buttons on a screen inside the car, you're not looking where you're going. And sometimes that can be for seconds at a time. You know, we have a, a, a strong belief that we're going to take that pertinent driving information from inside the car and overlay it upon reality in a way that means that you're always aware of your of your surroundings and certainly in the in the studies that we've undertaken you know that really does improve safety so imagine if i was to put you into a time machine jamie and and i bring you back in time you know perhaps to that moment where you were still doing your phd in cambridge and you were wondering about you know, doing something, you know, with holographic technologies and bringing them so that you could solve a problem that you were seeing there happening in the future. And you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? You know, it's an interesting question because actually the journey you were on is the vision I had during that PhD. I think the the element of it which is become an enormous shock is just how hard it is you know people say that being you know creating a technology company is hard that's absolutely right developing a deep technology 
company is really hard. Do not underestimate the challenges you'll come across. Developing hardware that works in the automotive environment based on radical newer theories and solutions will test you in ways that you cannot imagine. And it will test your family in ways that you cannot imagine. And if you're not up for it, don't do it. But I have this drive and determination to realize this technology. I genuinely believe that it will be transformative and beneficial for humanity. And so that's very much the mission I'm on is to try and enhance safety, to try and enhance your journey experiences. And, you know, I'm delighted that, you know, we've seen enormous support from investors, got amazing support from the team here and across the world. And, you know, we're very much succeeding in that mission. I love it. So, Jamie, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, please do go to our website. It's www.invisix.com. And there's a contact us page. You know, feel, please feel free to contact us, ask any questions, and we'll do our very best to get back to you. Amazing. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.